Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Yes, we are in the last chapter of 1 Timothy. We're bringing this thing to a close in the next few weeks. I don't know if you've ever heard of a man named David Berg. David Berg was a religious leader who started a worldwide cult. The cult was called the Children of God. And it started back during the Jesus movement in Southern California in the late 60s. In the mid-1960s, Berg was a pastor in the Christian and Missionary Alliance denomination, but was kicked out due to sexual immorality. So he started this new cult in the mid-70s called the Children of God. And they had a very novel evangelism strategy of getting especially men to join this religious movement. It was called flirty fishing. Taking Jesus' words out of context to be fishers of men, he sent young women out as prostitutes to lure men into this cult and to have them pay money and donations. It was basically an escort service run through this cult It went from 1974 to 1987. They finally had to shut it down because of the AIDS epidemic. In 1975, he and his mistress had an illegitimate child they called the Jesus Baby. And they named their cult the Family International. So they're known as the Family International. And during this time, this cult leader went into hiding. He went into hiding in Portugal And in hiding, he wrote about 3,000 letters back to his church under the name of Moses Paul Jesus. Got to get all of them in there. About how to keep this escort service, how to keep all these things going. He predicted the second coming of Christ to happen in 1993. Well, he died in 1991. There's actually a uh, documentary movie made about this in the 90s. But many people that came out of his cult said that there was child exploitation, there was pedophilia, there was prostitution, all manner of sexual sin in the name of Christianity. Now, why do I bring up this cult leader, David Berg, and his cult, the Family International? Well, Paul started his letter to 1 Timothy back in chapter 1, verse 3, addressing false teachers. And as he brings the letter to a close, he's going to get back to that main issue of addressing false teachers. And so we're going to see the devastating effects of what false teaching does in the life of a church and in the life of an individual Christian. So let's read this together in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And actually, I'm going to start the way the ESV does it. It breaks up verse 2 kind of 2b, right before verse 3. So here we go. Teach 
and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So let me just distill this message down to one statement. It's kind of a provocative statement. It is this. False teaching leads to perverted minds and restless hearts. False teaching is going to impact your mind and it's going to impact your heart. Let me state it positively. That's a negative way to state it. False doctrine leads to perverted minds and restless hearts. Let me state it positively. Sound doctrine leads to a renewed mind and a contented heart. Godly thinking and holy desires. Now, Paul tells Timothy, teach and urge these things. Don't just impart information, but insist upon these things. And the whole issue comes down to sound teaching versus false teaching or heresy. Notice what he says there in verse 3. If anyone does, teaches a different doctrine does not, that does not agree with the sound words, the sound words, the healthy, life-giving words of Jesus. And so, all throughout the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, it focuses on sound teaching. 2nd Timothy 1.13 Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Titus chapter 2, verse 1 But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So how do you know something is heresy or something is false? How do you know it? Well, Paul gives kind of a summary here in verse 3. And really it focuses on two things. It focuses on the person and work of Christ Jesus himself and then subsequently godly living. So if it's not about who Jesus is, the right Jesus, the right gospel, and it doesn't lead to godly or holy living, it is false teaching. Most false teachings, most cults, do two things. They, number one, distort the person and work of Christ. 
There's a distortion about who Jesus is, what he's done on the cross. They take away his deity, or they take away the cross. They take away salvation. And then, secondly, most false teachings lead to ungodly living, some type of warped way of living. And so here's the bottom line. You cannot separate doctrine from lifestyle. What you believe impacts how you live. Sound theology will lead to godly living. Because notice what Paul says there in verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, okay, there's the person and work of Christ, what Christ teaches, who He is, and the teaching that accords with godliness, godly living, righteous living, And so Paul is going to address the dangers of false teaching. And there's two sections here. One focuses on the perverted mind, and the second focuses on the restless heart. And so false teaching is going to lead to perverted minds and restless hearts. Sound teaching is going to lead to renewed minds and healthy hearts, godly, contented hearts. So let's look at this first section that focuses more on the mind. This is in verses 4 and 5. So here's what we see in verses 4 and 5. A corrupt mind leads to ungodly actions. A corrupt mind will lead to ungodly actions. Now, Paul gives three descriptions of these ungodly leaders, these false teachers. Now, remember, these false teachers came out of the church itself. These were the elders of the church These weren't guys coming from outside. These were guys that rose up within the ranks and were leading the people astray. And so the first thing he says about them there in verse 4, he's puffed up with conceit. He's puffed up with conceit. It's interesting, in the original language, that word literally means a pathological obsession with self. He's pathologically obsessed with himself almost to the point where it's some translations almost use the word he has gone mentally insane because he's so focused on himself. It's an ungodly self-absorption. Second, he says they know nothing. They understand nothing. There's no spiritual understanding. Now, they may be deluded into thinking that they're spiritual and they think they have biblical knowledge, but they are way off base. And then number three, they have this unhealthy, or as some translations may even say, a morbid craving for controversy and quarrels. They like to battle over words. They they have a craving for controversy. They have a craving for disunity in the church. It's unhealthy. It's morbid. Phil Reich, and I like the way he says it, he describes it this way. He says, he not only splits hairs, but he tries to do so with the chainsaw. Splitting hairs with the chainsaw. It's unhealthy. It's sickly. It's morbid. In contrast to sound, healthy, correct theology. So, False theology, false teaching is unhealthy. It's morbid. It's sickly. It leads to ruin. Sound theology, on the other hand, leads to life, leads to health, leads to growth. So what does it produce? 
What does this false teaching produce or what is it, what, what's the end goal? Well, Paul here lists five sins, five things it leads to. You can see that there in verses 4 and 5. He has an unhealthy craving for contra- controversy and quarrels about words, which produce, okay, what are these things, what does this produce? Five things Paul lists. Here's the first. It produces envy. It leads to envy, jealousy. James 3, 14 through 16, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. This, this passage of Scripture always hits me because Paul, not Paul, but James here says it's demonic. Have you ever thought about jealousy being demonic? We think of demonic like the exorcist and people floating and heads spinning around and weird stuff. James says, no, when you're jealous and there's dissension and there's envy, it's demonic. It's of the devil. Second, he says here, it leads to dissensions, disunity, strife, quarreling. Galatians 5, 19-21, now the works of the flesh are evident Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, and and here's this list here in the middle of all these things. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Jealousy, envy, dissension. And, And number three, he says, slander. Slander, speaking evil of others, gossiping about others. Number four, evil suspicions. You know, when there's false teaching and there's disunity in a church, there's not a culture of trust. Everyone lives in fear and distrust of one another. There's there's no transparency. There's no vulnerability. Everybody's on eggshells because there's no trust. There's suspicions. And then notice the fifth thing he says there. Going into verse 5, and constant friction. Constant friction. Continuous disunity. These types of practices rip a church family apart. So instead of these things, how does Paul tell us as followers of Christ to behave? What's the opposite of these things? of dissensions and gossip and slander and wickedness and evil and and dissension. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, Paul tells us the opposite. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So how do we walk in a manner worthy of the calling we've been called? With all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So false teaching leads to all manner of evil behavior that rips apart churches. And what's the source of all this? Notice what he says there. In verse 5, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind. Depravity of mind. Twisted, perverted is literally what the word means, corrupted. 
It was used in the ancient world of how iron would rust or how a moth would ruin your clothing. It is a corrupted, blinded, twisted mind. And what's the source of this? Paul doesn't address it right here, but he does in 2 Corinthians tell us where the source of this blinding, this corrupted mind. Now, we are born with a corrupt mind, but Satan does something to us. Unbelievers, not Christians, but unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 4.4. In their case, talking about unbelievers, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan's behind this activity, this false teaching, this perversion of mind. Satan is clouding and perverting the minds of these men. Titus 1 verse 15, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but their minds and their consciences are defiled, twisted, perverted. So false teaching produces not only a twisted and perverted mind, but a twisted and perverted mind teaches false teaching. They, they, they go hand in hand. It, it starts in the mind. And what does Paul say we should be doing with our minds? Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind. The renewal, transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So these leaders, these false teachers, are corrupted, perverted, twisted in their minds. And not only that, but look at the second thing Paul says about them. They are deprived of the truth. Literally robbed of the truth. And the way the original language words this, it almost makes it sound like someone has robbed them of the truth. Now, Paul doesn't come right out and say it. But who do we know has blinded the minds of unbelievers? Who has robbed people of the truth? In a sense, Satan is behind this. They have no clue about the true gospel. It's not that they water down the gospel. It's they teach a totally different gospel altogether. And this false teaching is perverting their thinking, and it's leading to ungodly actions. What starts in the mind leads to actions. So let me just say it again. Theology affects practice. What you think about, what you take in, what you believe is eventually going to lead to how you live, how you act in ungodly lifestyles. Right belief leads to right thinking and right living, whereas false belief leads to perverted thinking and ungodly living. Now, what were these men doing? What's the bottom line? What's driving them? The almighty dollar. Notice what it says there at the end of verse 5. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, the ESV says gain, but literally in the original language, financial gain. These guys are trying to to financially take advantage of those in the church. Now, you've seen the dangers of the false prosperity, name it, claim it, word, faith, gospel, whatever you want to call it. Blab it, grab it, name it, claim it. Give to Pastor Sean's personal account so I can go get my jumbo jet to fly across the world and have my my 10 Mercedes. There's a lot of people today that peddle Christianity for financial gain. I don't have to tell you all the stories of televangelists who have lived opulent, exorbitant lifestyles. 
and all their moral failings as well. So the first section here focuses on a corrupted mind. False doctrine is always going to lead to a perverted, twisted, corrupted mind. And Satan's behind it all. He's blinding the minds of unbelievers. He's robbing people of the truth. And so this corrupted theology leads to corrupted minds and it leads to corrupted actions which are going to infect and corrupt the entire church if not dealt with is what Paul's saying to Timothy. You need to get it under control because these men are causing problems. So the first thing is the mind, the perverted mind. Okay, the second thing that we see in verses 6 through 10 is the heart. And so here's what we see. Corrupt desires lead to discontentment. There's a word that Paul uses twice in this section, and it's the word content. There is a direct correlation to what we think about, what's in our heart, and then how we act upon that. And oftentimes, a source of discontentment, a source of sin, a source of craving, a source of lusting comes in how we view money and the issue of financial, financial issues. So notice what Paul says there in verse 6. But, in, trans, in contradistinction, in contrast to this false teaching, but godliness with contentment is great gain. I've been thinking a lot this past week about that word contentment. What is contentment? Glenn addressed it earlier when he was leading us through our time of confession. What is contentment? Well, there's a great little book by a Puritan named Jeremiah Burroughs. It's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's a, it's a great little book. It was written back in the 1600s, but it's, it's, it's applicable today. Here's how he defines contentment. I love the way he defines it. He says this is contentment. Quote, That sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly sovereignty in every situation. In other words, contentment is this. It's an inward sense of quiet and peace as you receive from God whatever He's going to give to you, no matter what the circumstance. It's a contentment. It's something that God produces in you. Matthew 6.21, Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, if you're, if you're obsessed with getting material possessions and getting rich and all these things, if that's where your pursuits are, that's where your heart's going to be. Your heart's going to be obsessed with that. That's where you're going to live your entire life. It's going to be the be-all, end-all of your life. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. You're, you're familiar with Philippians 4, 13, but what comes before it? Paul says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Twice Paul says, I've learned to become content. Let me just give you a newsflash. You can't walk over to Walmart or Home Depot and buy contentment off the shelf. You just can't buy it off the shelf. It's something you have to learn through experience. 
God will sovereignly take you through situations to teach you contentment deep in your heart. God ordains circumstances for us to learn contentment. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency... And all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Okay, leave that up there on the screen for just a moment. Look at that word, all sufficiency. That is the Greek word for contentment that Paul uses here in Timothy. Contentment means all sufficiency in Christ. Contentment means this. I have everything I need in Jesus. He is my all sufficiency. And because he's my all-sufficiency, I am content. So let me just ask you a straight-up question this morning. Are you content? Are you content with where God has placed you? Are you content with your finances? Are you content with your job? Are you content with your life situation, with your relationships? Again, does this come automatically? No. It comes through experience that we have to learn it. But we trust in Christ's mercy to meet our needs. In other words, we rest in God's sovereignty and all sufficiency to meet our needs. And when we rest and trust in Him, He gives us that deep sense of contentment to know that no matter what we're going through, He is our all in all. He is our sufficiency. He will provide for all of our needs. And Paul goes on to explain some things. In verse 7, he says it's kind of folly to be materialistic because he says, verse 7, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. I have never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Have you ever seen that? Now, the King Tut and the ancient pharaohs thought they could take everything with them. You can't take it with you when you die. Job said it this way, Job 121 Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. You brought nothing into the world, you're going to take nothing out of it. Verse 8, Paul says God's going to provide for all your needs. Verse 8, if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. If we have food and clothing, we should be content with what God has given us. Food and clothing. It reminds me of Jesus' words in the, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 31-34. Jesus says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Contentment. Now, in verses 9 and 10, Paul takes his focus off these false teachers and and widens it out to anybody. Anybody who has an unhealthy craving to get rich, Paul addresses that, this unhealthy craving. Now, let me just be very clear here. Paul does not condemn money. Paul does not say money's bad. We need money to buy things, to invest. You need money. Money inherently is not bad. So Paul's not addressing your basic needs or money. There's nothing inherently sinful about being rich, having possessions, being materially blessed. He's he's addressing the condition of the heart. 
And so in verse 9, he uses a very strong word here. But those who desire to be rich, an inordinate desire, an unhealthy desire, a craving, this insatiable, never-satisfying lust to get rich. If you have that lust to get rich, Paul says three things are going to happen to you, and they progressively get worse. There's a downward progression. The first thing he says happens to you is that you will fall into temptation. Notice what he says there. But those who desire to be rich, number one, fall into temptation. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying that you had a little bit more money. There's nothing wrong with asking God to help meet your needs. There's nothing wrong with wanting God to provide for you financially. There's nothing wrong with that. Jesus tells us in the Lord's Prayer to to pray for our daily bread. That's not what Paul's addressing here. What Paul is saying is if you have an unhealthy craving to get rich, that's a temptation. And it's at that point of temptation you have the choice to ask the Lord to take that temptation away or to give you strength to get out of that temptation, there is a temptation that you're faced with and you can fall into that temptation if you're not careful. James 1, 13-15. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, gives birth to death. So the first of this downward progression is you fall into temptation. At that point of temptation, you can say no. You can ask for God's grace. You can resist the temptation by God's sovereign power in your life. But Paul says if, if you don't say no to temptation, here's what happens, number two, in this downward progression. Number two, you fall into a snare. This is imagery of of an animal being caught in a snare, like a mouse being caught in a mouse trap, or those big bear claws, those big bear traps. You're, You're trapped, and you can't get out. Now, Paul does not come right out and say it here, but we know in two other places in 1 Timothy, when the word snare is used, it's often used of the devil. Now, it's not explicit here, But we can read the rest of 1 Timothy and realize that this snare, this temptation that's coming to you, is again demonic. It comes from the devil. It is a devilish snare for you to want to get rich at all costs and have this insatiable greed and materialism. So number one, it's a temptation. And at that point, you can say no. If you don't say no to the temptation, you are trapped like a mouse or a bear. Number three, you are plunged into a drowning experience of destruction. Notice the language that Paul uses there. Verse nine, but those who desire, and again, this is a strong, unhealthy desire to be rich. Number one, fall into temptation. Number two, into a snare. And number three, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Plunge. What comes to your mind when you think about the word plunge? You took the Nestle plunge back in the day. What's plunge? To go underwater and to be under the waves. One commentator, I love the imagery he used, he, he says, harmful desires torpedoing the unaware person and sending them down to ruin at the bottom of the sea. Torpedoing. 
Here's the thing. What you think is an innocent little temptation soon becomes a trap, and then, boom, you're torpedoed to the bottom of the ocean, and you're drowning in your sorrows because of this insatiable desire to get rich. It leads to ruin and destruction. You've been torpedoed to the bottom of the ocean. Proverbs 28.20, a faithful man will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. Now, there are two ways you can take the end of verse 9. These harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. There's two ways you can take that. One is in the temporal time that we live now, it could cause problems for you financially right in the here and now. But that word destruction is often used of hell. Paul is saying if this is unrepentant sin and you've not trusted Christ for salvation and you the be-all, end-all of your life is this desire to get rich and be materialistic and Christ is not your Savior, it will end not only in major financial problems here on earth, but it could end in your eternal destiny. And then in verse 10, Paul gives a proverb that has been misquoted so many times. Read it carefully. For the what? Love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Paul does not say money is the root of all kinds of evils. He's not, he's not condemning money. We need money. It's the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Now, why does Paul call it root? I can think for two reasons why Paul calls it a root. Number one... It lies beneath the surface and is often undetected. This love of money hides deep in your soul. It's, it's buried deep. It's, it's taken root and you can't see it. But also it's called the root because a root produces fruit. And if it's deeply bedded in you and you can't see it, it's going to eventually produce fruit in your life, the fruit of misery. Hebrews 13.5 Keep your life free from the love of money and be content. There's that word, both words. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Again, it's the condition of your heart. Is your heart insatiably, incurably, lustfully drawn towards materialism as the be-all, end-all? Have you fallen into that snare? Have you fallen into that trap? Have you been plunged into ruin? Do you have the love of money? 1 John 2, 15-16 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Now, what does this love of money do? It's pretty dangerous. Notice what Paul says here at the very end of verse 10. It is through this craving, again, this unhealthy craving, this unhealthy love for money, some have wandered from the faith. It's affected people's walk with God. It's led them to turn from the faith. Not that they lost their salvation, but they were never saved in the first place, and it just took them on this path of, falling away. But the second thing it says there is they've been pierced with many pangs. Pierced. 
again, evocative imagery that Paul uses here, that means to be impaled on a spike. To have this spear going right in your heart. Anguish. Heartbreak. A self-inflicted wound. We could probably all here this morning share of some self-inflicted heart wounds that we've had that have come from money and finances. Self-inflicted pains that we've been stung with or pierced with because of the love of money. Luke 16, 13, Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And this is what was read earlier, Ecclesiastes 5.10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. Now let's retrace our steps here for a moment this morning. Where did it all start? Paul gets to the love of money, but where did it start? It started with false teaching. The dangers of false teaching. False teaching leads to a perverted mind and a restless heart. And one of the clearest ways that that's lived out is in a love for money and being wrapped up and obsessed with materialism and divisions in the church and discontentments and not trusting in the sovereignty and goodness of God. Perverted doctrine leads to perverted minds and restless And you may say, well, why is doctrine so important to you, Pastor Sean? Why do you always talk about doctrine? You're always talking about theology. You're always talking about doctrine. Why can't we just have happy stories about your life and, and, and you just entertain us? Here's the reason why. I'll say it again. Doctrine affects your life, how you live. What you believe impacts how you live. And I don't want you to live ungodly lives. I don't want you to have perverted minds and restless hearts. I want you to have renewed minds and contented hearts, and that comes from sound theology, a proper view of Jesus, a proper view of his Bible. If you don't hold a sound doctrine, it can pervert your thinking. It can lead to unhealthy desires. It can lead to ruined relationships. It can lead to to financial disaster. It can lead to church splits. It can lead lead to a a future in hell, if, if not repented of. So let's just ask the question, what is the condition of your mind today? What's the condition of your mind? Is it renewed or is it perverted? What's the condition of your heart today? Is it restless and discontented or is it content and is it trusting in the goodness and sovereignty of God? Maybe some of you need to repent of false doctrine. Maybe some of you need to repent of an unhealthy craving to get rich. Some of you may need to repent of discontentment deep in your soul. You know, John Calvin said our minds can become idol factories. We can just turn out idols after idols after idols. Because here's the point. You and I were made to worship. God has created us to worship. You will worship. It's not a matter of if you will worship. It's you will worship. It's the question is who will be the object of your worship? Will it be yourself? Will it be money? Will it be things? Or will it be Christ alone? You were made to worship. Augustine, in his famous 
opening pages of his confession says this. He's talking as a prayer to God. He says, God, you stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you've made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Is your heart restless? Is your mind captive to lust? Do you believe the lies of Satan? Are you trapped in materialism? If so, I've got great news for you. Did you know that Jesus died for your materialism? Do you know that Jesus died for your lust? Do you know that Jesus died for your restless heart? Jesus died for all of your sins. So if you're believing false teaching and you're discontent and you have a perverted mind and a restless heart, Jesus came to set you free this morning. He died for your materialism. He died for your restless heart. Because here's the wages of sin. The wages, the payout of lust, the payout of materialism, the payout of a restless heart, a payout of a a perverted mind, the wages of sin is death. And that's not just ceasing to exist. That's eternal condemnation in hell. The payout for your continued rebellion is eternal separation from God in hell. But the good news is that Jesus died in the place of guilty sinners so you and I would not have to face that eternity. Our sins could be forgiven. We could be forgiven of materialism. We could be forgiven of lust. We could be forgiven of, of a perverted mind, of a restless heart. And so the question is, do you believe that? Are you looking to Jesus? Are you resting in Jesus? Are you casting yourself at Jesus? And His mercy is the only one who can deliver you from these things in your heart. You can't deliver yourself, only Jesus can. So what I want us to do is I want us to have the heartfelt cry of King David in Psalm 27. Let this be your heart cry this morning. One thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after. What's that one thing, King David? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Would we gaze upon the beauty of the Lord? May we have the heart cry of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, may we gaze upon the beauty of Jesus and His cross, and may we be content in His grace and power that's made perfect in our weakness. And so, as we take the Lord's Supper, I want two things to happen to us this morning. I want our minds to be filled with the glory of Christ, and I want our hearts to be inflamed with the love for Christ. And as our minds are focused on Christ and our hearts are focused on Christ, may we receive from Him contentment. The peace that passes understanding. He is our only source of grace. He's our only source of peace. He's our only source of contentment. And the Lord's Supper is a means to commune with your Savior Jesus and receive those good gifts from Him because of what He did for us on the cross. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together as a church family. What's the condition of your mind? What's the condition of your heart? Are you content? 
Spend some time asking the Lord to change your heart and change your mind and renew your mind and give you that contentment that can only be found in Christ alone. Keep your heads bowed and continue in a time of prayer as we ask those that are coming to lead and serve the Lord's Supper. If you would come at this time, And we ask that you help renew our minds, satisfy our hearts, and grant us the contentment that can only come through Christ alone and all the sufficiency we have in Jesus. May we truly commune with you this morning the spiritual nourishment we receive from the Lord's Supper as we worship you in communion. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.